Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. All right, guys, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, tonight, we are tackling some more big things, but we're also going to leave some things behind. But I just wanted to say welcome again. Uh, we are going to have to squeeze some things together. We're not going to do that tonight because we're talking about the Trinity, and that's a big enough topic as it is. But um, later on, since we missed last week, I'm going to squeeze some subjects together. Uh, but at least for tonight, uh, we're going to keep going. And really, the first two weeks, I really just wanted to reinvigorate like why we study this book, like why it's used in our worship, why we use it in our personal lives, and why we can trust it. Scripture really is the meeting place with God. It's where we go to hear him speak. It's where he speaks the loudest. He can speak whenever he wants, however he wants, but this is where he speaks, and he tells us that's where he speaks. And so we go simply to be with him here. And really, the whole point is that by understanding that, by trusting that, by going to Scripture, we can begin to be transformed by it, not just in like consuming information, but again, being transformed through this book. And so we unpack the Bible, the logistics of those things. And since uh, the claim is that the book is about God, tonight we're going to just talk about who he is, right? If God wrote the book and it's really his story, tonight we're gonna start to ask, who is he? What does it say about him? What is he like? What, is he, what does he want from us? And uh, start to journey through this term, this big term, theology, okay? Theology. Now, the term theology in general, like it's a pretty broad term. Um, it can be used when we talk about concepts like God or salvation or the church. Literally anything that has to do with, the, with concepts in this Bible can really be labeled as theology in, in many ways. But it also has um, what we call capital T theology, which basically means when it, we're addressing specifically who God is in and of himself. And it's the types of questions that you ask like, does he exist? If he does exist, who is he? Like, what does his identity tell us about the world and his plans and his purpose and his goal? And really, what, is it, what does it tell us about us? Like, if God is the creator or if he's simply another transcendent being that is, you know, just out there in the world somewhere, or if there's many gods in general, like, what does that have to do with us? And so that's really what the topic of theology starts to cover. But before we dive in, I want to pray to him. Because ultimately, God likes it when we talk about him, but he likes it a whole lot more when we talk to him. And so let's go ahead and do that tonight as we just prepare our hearts for really learning more about the person that we worship. Father God, you are good and glorious and true. And Father, we pray that tonight uh, you would just simply speak. God, that we could have ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that are open, to be molded and shaped by, by really a better understanding of you, Father. Because the more we understand you, the more we will understand ourselves. The more we will have a confidence and a trust and an anchor, Father, that allows us to hope and be unshaken. Father, we pray that tonight we would just catch a glimpse of all that you are and be changed by it. It's in your son's holy and precious name, Jesus, that we pray through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so one thing, I just want to remind you, uh, you do have those note cards on your table, those index cards. If you ever have questions, just as a reminder, write those questions down on that and put it in the black box that's over there on the, uh, where all the papers are. And again, the last night of this class, we're going to do a Q&A with Mark Christian, Michael DeFazio, and myself. And we'll try to answer as many of those questions as we can. Um, and so just 
make sure if any, any if ever a question comes up, you can also ask it in the class. I don't want you to feel like you can't. But if you're also one of those people that's like, I don't want to talk in front of people, then that, that would be a good option for you as well. So just write down on those note cards. But tonight, one of the things I want to start off with is simply this, okay? We're going to talk about that the fact that there's one God, that God is Trinitarian, and we're going to talk about the Trinitarian life of God, which is going to be more practical. So I want to look at the fact that there is one God, and I want to ask you to discuss with your table this question. What is the most beautiful thing that you have ever experienced? The most beautiful thing that you have ever experienced. Okay, so just talk about that with your table a little bit. Ready? Go. All right, guys, let's come back. Come back together. I want to hear some of the things that you talked about at your table. Maybe it was, maybe, I know you may not have gotten all the way around your table in general, but tell me some of the things. What are some things that you said? What are some of the most beautiful things that you've ever experienced? What you got? Do you need me to go first? Childbirth, yep, childbirth. What else? What else you got? It's just childbirth. That's the most beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just creation, those big, big, massive things of creation. Yeah. Yep. Which we have some great sunrise. Like, it's so flat out here in, in certain areas, like, especially on a Sunday morning. If you're out in our cafe, you can just see it coming up, and it's, it's great. What else? Yeah. 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 What else? What else you guys got? Well, I can tell you one of the most beautiful things I've ever experienced was when the Chiefs lost two weeks ago. <laughs> I'm, just, <laughs> I'm a Broncos fan, so any opportunity I can. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm just joking. I'm sad for all of you, okay? I, I know. It's a beautiful thing when your team gets there. I get it. But I said experience. I specifically said experience because I think when most people think of something beautiful, they really they think of something aesthetically astounding. Like when they see it, it, it visually pops in some different way. And the truth is that can be really beautiful. But like we can also experience like hearing something or tasting something or really any of our senses being engaged. And when they are, it's just this sense of wonder that comes over us, right? Like that's what happens when we encounter something beautiful. And most of what we say is beautiful is not just beautiful because of what it looks like, but because of what it means. Like if you take the birth of a child, right? That's not really beautiful aesthetically, but it is stunning and everything that it says about literally life as a whole. I mean, it is an amazing process. If you take a sunset, it's really the same thing. It's like, it just, you know, our earth spins and it looks as though the sun's coming up and when it's coming down and it makes this spectrum of color that just 
swarms the entire sky. And we just don't get to see that most of the day. There's like these small little moments. And most of us are like in bed when, when it starts and inside when it goes down or it's blocked by the things that we've built around it. There's, things are stunning. Or a song, right? Like a song when it's playing a certain sort of, of melody or there's specific lyrics or that song is tied to a specific moment. Sometimes when we tie specific songs to a moment in our life, that when we hear that song, it just brings us back to that sense of wonder all over again. It's amazing what these things that are beautiful can really do. And the truth is that they're appealing to something that actually starts to drive us. Like they start to actually produce in us a sort of longing or, or desire that like we try to get that thing. Or at least at some level that we would, if we had a chance to make the whole world, we would make it like that, you know, at some level. Now I bring this up because we can't really talk about God without acknowledging that if there is a God and we believe there is, right? Like we have to be the most, he has to be the most beautiful thing that we've ever experienced. He has to be. If there is a God, he will be the most beautiful thing you have ever seen. He will completely demolish any sense of expectation of wonder that you could ever possess. If we speak of God only as a transcendent being that exists out there somewhere, but that is not really beautiful, then we don't fully know him. To acknowledge God as beautiful is not only to say that he's transcendent, but that he is imminent, that he actually, we, we can know him, that he's personal and that we've experienced who he is. This is why it's so difficult sometimes for people to explain God to another person, right? Because it's one thing for me to say something is beautiful and that I have been totally changed by it forever. And it's another thing for you to know what I mean when I say that. You see, the only reason that you can understand what, what someone means when they say that childbirth is the most, one of the most beautiful things is because you yourself have had a child. You have experienced the wonder and the delight of what happens when you hold that little soul in your fist. Like what happens when you look and you see that this is made up of a little bit of you and a little bit of someone else. It's an astounding thing, but it's not aesthetically pleasing. It's meaningful. That's what provides our sense of wonder. And so our discussion of God, it has to be couched in this fact that he is absolutely beautiful, more beautiful than any other thing. And if it's not, then all I'm explaining to you is an idea of something that we could really never know about. But it's hard to explain that. It's hard to explain that to somebody who doesn't really understand, who's never experienced him before. It's like explaining to a 14-year-old that, be- that childbirth is one of the most beautiful things ever. They're just not really gonna probably understand that until they have a child themselves. This is what our goal is, to experience a God like this. God must be totally beautiful. Now, why is this the case? Your first blank, because there's only one God. There's only one God. That's what we believe. There is one God. And I'm not gonna read through every scripture I have underneath these because that would take us a long time, but I'll read through some of them. Isaiah 44, six says, this is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. First Timothy 1.17, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. Now, this may not be revolutionary to us in this room, but when the Bible was written, very few people, very few, thought that there was only one God. Most people thought there were lots of God. They were polytheists. And if they wanted to be in right relationship with that God, they had to do the right thing so that they took care of them in all the right ways. 
honestly, we actually, I think in many ways are seeing a renaissance of this idea of spirituality and God in our time right now. Like religion and spirituality specifically are actually growing. They're growing phenomenons. More and more people do believe that there's something out there, even if they don't know exactly what that thing is. In fact, those are the books that continue to fly off the shelves in a bookstore all the time because they have this idea that they are missing something, that there is something out there, even if they can't quite put their finger on what that thing is, but they want to know at some level or have some connection with it. And so Christianity's claim is unique and it's exclusive. Like you can't be a Christian and acknowledge other gods. That's just not a part of what could ever be true. In fact, there are only two other major religions that claim monotheism, the idea that there's only one God. You know what they are? Major religions. Judaism and Islam, right? And this shouldn't be surprising because Christianity claims to be the fulfillment of Judaism and Islam is actually a religion that claims to be the uncorrupted version of Judaism and Christianity. These are the three biggest religions in the world and they claim monotheism. But there are other major religions that believe that there are millions of gods, like Hinduism and Buddhism that believes that different things could be gods. Now, the first reason God is the most beautiful thing is because there's no other being like him. He is the one and only, none that can compare. He can't be compared to another divine being because there are none. He is uniquely God. And because of this, he is solely responsible for the creation of every single thing, which inherently means that everything is lesser than what he is. If there is only one God and he created every single thing, everything else is simply less than what he is. He has to stand above it if he is God, if he is creator, and we believe that he is. And so your second blank is God is creator. God is creator, right? Genesis 1.1, in the beginnings, God created the heavens and the earth. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is the creator of all things. And if God is the creator of all things, it means everything we see as beautiful is actually the art of someone else. It's actually the art of God. And of course, we've mentioned things that we have experienced that are beautiful. Like if you think about music or food or creation or children, but those are made by someone. Like the beauty is really in their head. Even any artistic expression is coming from somebody's mind. And really, we're just seeing the expression of those things. And a child is the same way. Part of what makes it so beautiful is not just because it's a little pudgy baby. It's because it's our little pudgy baby. It's because it's really a complex being that has been created by two others and its genetic structures are a representation of this union. And because God is who he is as creator, everything we see is actually his work. It comes from his mind. And all the beauty we experience in this life are like the shadows of the real beauty, copies of the real image. And if God is creator, then your next blank, he's also all-powerful and all-knowing. God is all-powerful and all-knowing. All-powerful and all-knowing. Psalm 147, 5 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Isaiah forty twenty eight says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Now, when we say God is all-powerful and all-knowing, now this is gonna be tricky. I need you to follow along with me, okay? When we say God is all-powerful and all-knowing, we don't mean to say that he can literally do everything or know 
every possible thing. Well, he knows every possible thing, but we're not saying he knows everything. We're not saying he's completely all-powerful. And let me explain, okay? It, what we're saying is he can do everything that is possible to do. He's all-powerful to do all that is possible to do. And he's all-knowing, which means that he can know everything that it is possible to know. Everything that's possible to know, he knows, and everything that he's able to do, he can do. For instance, the age-old question. Have you guys ever heard the question, can God lift a rock that's so big that he himself cannot lift it? Have you ever heard that before? The answer to that question is no. God can't do that. And that sometimes rubs people the wrong way because they're like, wait, if God is God, why can't he do literally every, anything? But the problem is that that's a logical contradiction. It's like God can't make a married bachelor. God can't make a four-sided triangle. These things are inherent contradictions in and of themselves. And this doesn't mean God isn't all-powerful. It just means he has power to do what is possible to do. So God can't create a bigger being than himself. He is infinite. Infinite can't create something that is also infinite. That would basically cancel out everything of who he was. It's a contradiction of terms. And this same idea applies to his knowledge. And so scripture attests that he is all-powerful and all-knowing. That's who he is. But God is also all good. He's perfectly good. God is perfectly good. Psalm 100 verse 5 says, For the Lord is good, and his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. 1 Timothy 4 4 says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Again, all of these things add to the picture of beauty for us about who God is. Not only is God uniquely and exclusively God, not only is he the creator of all things and the creator that like, has allowed us to breathe in this very moment, it shows us that he also is all-powerful and all-knowledge and that his goodness wanted to create things and we every, created everything that we see before us, but also that we would share in that goodness in and of itself. But scripture gives us even more reasons to see him as beautiful, all right? God is unchangeable. God is unchangeable. That's another attribute, a characteristic of who God is. God is unchangeable. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He is perfectly good. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is unique. He is a unique being that created all things so that you could enjoy a life with him, and he will never change. You know what that means? It means you will never, ever have to wonder if God is in a good mood today. You will never have to wonder whether God is going to be nice or listen to your prayers. God is all-powerful, and he is all-knowing, and he is good, which means he is always listening. It means he is desperately wanting your attention, and that is who he is from moment to moment in our life. He is unchanging. He is beautiful. He is the most beautiful. Now, when we see beauty, what happens to us? When we see something beautiful, we experience a wonder and a delight and a desire for more of that thing. And it isn't just because they engage our senses. Like it's, we, when we see something beautiful, it's not just because it has engaged our sight or our taste or our smell or our touch. What happens is when we see something beautiful, it's actually taking us beyond those senses in and of themselves. If all we had were brute senses, like if all we had were taste and smell and sight, we'd literally just be animals. That would all we'd be just reacting to those things. We would seek the things that provided pleasure and we would avoid things that caused pain. 
and we wouldn't think literally at all. We wouldn't think. We wouldn't have that capacity. But we aren't just animals, are we, right? Hopefully not. We are humans. We can think. We can deliberate. We can choose. That's part of what being human entails. And so when we experience something beautiful, we are experiencing something that doesn't just engage part of our senses, but our mind. And our mind, again, isn't just a mechanical synapses in our brain, right? It's not just the firing off of these different electric uh, signals that are moving our parts. The brain shows us the physical process of our senses and the external lights of our thinking, but the mind is separate from the brain. If, I open, if we, somebody opened us up right now, they would not find us. They would just find our parts. We are able to have choice and again, to, to deliberate and to think and to reason and, and rationalize. That's a stunning thing. This mind is what makes you particularly you. You are not just your body, you are soul. You are physical and you are spiritual. Now, I, the reason I point this out is because God is not physical at all. We are physical and we are spiritual. God is not physical at all. God in, in himself, his essence, he is purely spiritual. John four twenty four says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Deuteronomy four fifteen says, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you out of Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the, of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." So what's being said is God may be invisible, but his effects are obvious. They point exactly to him. It's kind of the old watchmaker analogy, if you've ever heard that before. If if you're walking through the forest and you find a watch, and you're like, well, this didn't just pop up by creation. Uh, This is kind of Paul's point here, is that by finding something this intricate and designed, it's pointing to a designer. That's what Paul's saying. We might not be able to see God, but by the things that he's created, we can know by a fact that he exists. And so nobody is without excuse. And this is the framework by which we must come to God with. And by it, we can, this is like, when we understand these types of things, then we can start to ask the questions of what it means for God to be Trinitarian. Okay, so we're gonna go, we're gonna look at God as Trinitarian, but before we do, what questions do you have? Because obviously that was a lot of big things. Any questions? All right. Onward we go then. Onward we go. God is Trinitarian. So I've put some note cards on your table. Okay, so everybody grab one of those, right? Grab one of those cards. And here's what I want you to do. Don't write your name on it. Okay, don't write your name on it. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to write down a definition of the Trinity. What is the Trinity? If somebody said, what's the Trinity? I want you to write down a definition and it can be whatever you want. It can be, I don't know. It can be one sentence. It can be a paragraph, whatever you're comfortable with. Like this, um, no expectations for me and I, I'm gonna collect them, but I don't want you to, I don't wanna know who wrote what. So you don't need to feel like, you know, embarrassed or anything. Uh, but I just want you to write down what you would, how you would describe the Trinity and then just flip that over on your table and just come and like put them all at, the, uh, at a spot on the table where I can come grab them later.
What's that? You got to be able to see him? Yeah, so we'll talk about that. And we'll especially talk about that when we, next week, we'll talk about Christology, which is Jesus, but specifically what it means for God to take on human flesh, um, which is, an, it's a big topic, but it, it's a good question. Um, God, yeah, we'll, we'll, I'll address a part of it now and then we'll address more of that next week. Um, so what Dan said is, so we can't see God, God is spiritual, but we've got to be able to see him, right? It's, your question is, how can God take on a form of something if we can't see him? Is that your question? Yeah. So God can take the form of something um, physical, uh, but it's not necessarily who he is in his essence, if that makes sense. So let me explain it like this. Um, I can, um, I can, I can make a, um, let's, okay, let's do it this way. This will be easier. Um, if I, if I had a, a robot over there, I can, let's act like, again, this is, this analogy is going to fail because obviously this is still, these are still physical things at some level, but the analogy hopefully will be helpful. I can tell that robot how to operate and therefore speak to you in certain ways but that is not me. I'm just, I'm actually using the physical aspects of that robot to interact with you. But that in and of itself is not who I am fundamentally. I'm just using it. Does that make sense? And so that's what God does in his, he can take on a form. He can speak, he can do these things, but in and of himself, that is not who he is in and of himself. He is spiritual and we, and not physical at all, um, if that makes sense. So, yeah. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yep. So the bush is, yeah. So when God speaks from the bush, the bush in and of itself obviously is not God, but God can use that bush to reveal his will or his words or, you know, whatever the case may be. Any other thoughts or ways I can clear that up? It's, 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 it takes our mind a second to really adjust because we live in a world, especially now in our culture where everything is seen as physical. Every single thing is seen as atoms and particles and, and how they are collaborating together. And so it's really hard for us to conceive of something spiritual because our culture has cut that out so much. But if you were to go to places that like, actually believe in those things and see them more um, obviously, like in, like in Africa is one of those places. Uh, where If you were to go to Africa, they don't have the same um, naturalistic ideas and tendencies that we do in America. They believe in the spiritual realm. And that's true of, honestly, most of the world believes in the spiritual realm. We are more of the minority in that sense. Um, and so it really is, we have to take our minds away from our American culture for a moment and remember that like, what makes up me is not just my body, it's my, it's my soul, it's my mind, it's my deliberation and thoughts. And when we even talk about going to be with God when we die, at some level that is a spiritual presence that is awaiting the physical reuniting of our bodies in the resurrection, right? That's what we are looking forward to. But there is the spiritual part of us, which is why, for instance, my mind in and of itself, we think of our mind being right here. Uh, but that is only because that's where our brains are and that's what we've been told, um, you know, 
like scientifically, that's what's sending the, like the synapses and neurons and pathways and all those things to actually make our bodies move. But in reality, like I'm in my whole body, like I'm in control of my hands and my arms and things. And to locate your soul in any place is to misunderstand where it actually is located at within our bodies in and of themselves. Does that make sense? And so we really have to remind ourselves that we are not just physical, we are spiritual. And that is why we can experience, again, those senses of wonder and beauty and love and those things that don't make sense if all we were were brute um, responses and reactions in our, uh, in, our, in our senses. So any questions about that? All right, good. Well, here's the deal. I, I wrote that down because the Trinity really is one of the most difficult concepts to understand, again, in our finite minds. I was just talking to the characters over here and I'm just telling them, like, it, I want you to think of the most complicated thing you can think of. Let's say quantum theory. I was telling them quantum theory. Like that is a, like most of us in this room, if we started to talk about quantum theory, we would not know what was going on. And that is because it is insanely complex and it has to have a certain vocabulary for you to even get close to understanding the terms and what they're using and what they're explaining. And that's really what we're trying to do when we talk about the Trinity. And the vocabulary that we have for this is really difficult because ultimately we're talking about something that isn't physical in that way. And so we're trying to use our minds to deduce these different parts of what scripture has given us into understanding God further. And so this is very, this is, it's, it's going to um, really, you're gonna have to work with your mind to understand it well and accurately. Augustine said, he's an old church father. He said, there is no other place where error is more dangerous where questions are asked more rigorously or where anything more fruitful is found. So what he's saying is if you get this wrong, it can be very dangerous in, your, in terms of your understanding of who God is and therefore your understanding of who you are. But when you start to really understand the Trinity, it can actually become that source of beauty and delight and desire that begin to really feed our faith as we go forward. So simply put, the Trinity is that God is one being yet three persons. One being yet three persons. Okay, one being, yet three persons. And that's kind of difficult to understand. So the graphic that you have on your sheet gives you a little bit of what that means. God is Father, Son, and Spirit, and yet God is one. The Son is God, the Father is God, the Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, but they are, it's one being. And it shows unity in the fact that the Father, Son, and Spirit are God, but diversity in that the Father, Son, and Spirit are different persons. So before we unpack what we mean by some of these words, let me show you how Scripture affirms the Trinitarian nature of God. Because first and foremost, that's what's giving us our information, okay? So the Father is God. Father is God. The Father is God. Malachi 2.10, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. So again, there, this is, these are just a couple of scriptures. There's obviously a lot of scriptures that talk about God as father. Um, and so this is one of the ways in which we can conceive of those things. The next one is the son is God. The son is God. Colossians 1, 15. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Oh, that's not Colossians 1.15. That is Genesis. <laughs> well, Colossians 1.15 says, um, I got to think of it off the top of my head if I can remember it. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of overall creation. For by him and through him, all things were created. Right? This is talking about Jesus. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way? A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now, I included this one, and it may not be obvious, but I, the reason I included Mark 1.1 1, 1 here, um, well, Mark 1 through 3, is it because the Isaiah passage that it's actually quoting, if you go back to that Isaiah passage, it actually is talking about Yahweh. And so when Mark quotes it here, he is being clear, Jesus is God. This is the one that we had called Yahweh all this time. And so I, that's why I wanted to add this one because I wanted to make sure it's clear that even as Mark wrote his gospel, they saw Jesus as God. Hebrews 1.3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. John 8.58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. See, even here, Jesus is claiming to be God. He's claiming to be divine. And then I put these possible Old Testament appearances. The reason I say possible Old Testament appearances is because obviously in, within the Old Testament, Jesus um, is not alive yet in, in, his, in that human. The son, as the divine person, is alive but he is not incarnate in the person of Jesus yet. But what most people think is when you see a form of God, it is actually the Son. And we'll talk more about that. So all of these appearances of God um, are actually, could be actually ways in which the Son is revealing the Word of God to the people at that time. He's taking the form in these physical ways, just like he would in the New Testament, but it would be in the person, the human Jesus. Spirit is God. The Spirit is God. That's the last one there. The Spirit is God. Genesis 1-2, the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. 2 Corinthians 3-17, now the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we can see, again, the Spirit is God. Now, the Trinity in Scripture, here are several different places where the Trinity as the Father, Son, and Spirit are mentioned um, as these three persons in one being. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, I probably need to make a, a little note there. Um, oftentimes, the word God would be um, attributed as a title toward the Father, but it's not necessarily trying to separate the Father as being a greater divine being or more different than that. It's just using that word God more as a title than saying that these other ones aren't God. And actually you can see that in Corinthians in general, both first and second, um, by the way in which Paul explains that. Matthew 28, 19, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. John 14, 16, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. Okay, and then in general, there are just several times mentioned throughout scripture where it'll list like the father and the son together or it will list the father and the spirit or the son and the spirit. And all of these things point to the fact that these, the father, son, spirit make up the Godhead. They make up the Godhead. And so we head back to our original definition. God is one being yet three persons. One being yet three persons. Now, if you're like, this is confusing, I want to know more, I want to dig deeper, 
Fred Sanders, that's a good guy to read. Fred Sanders, he's got some very complicated things to say about this, but he has, it's a, he has a lot of books and some are complicated, some are easier to digest, but he would be a great person to read. But uh, he did something, uh, he, he taught the Trinity to the children's ministry at his church. So this guy's like a world-class uh, theologian um, and he teaches the children's ministry at his church. So like, that's a good guy. No matter, like, I don't know, I'm sure like, I'm sure he's got his problems, but the fact that he's a world-class theologian and he's teaching the little kids, that's a humble guy. So anyways, he taught this lesson to the children's ministry at his church on the Trinity. And honestly, I thought it was a great way to explain it to literally anyone. And so I don't know if those kids walked out that day being like, I understand the Trinity, <laughs> but I think that you will. Like, I think that this will actually be helpful. So here's what he says. He says, I'm one being and I'm one person. I'm one being and I'm one person. I'm a unity. I'm a unity. But God is Trinity. Sometimes when I'm alone, I'm lonely. But when God is alone, he never is. Now, let me get three people to stand up. Nathan, you want to stand up for me? And then uh, let's have, uh, 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 we'll have uh, Dale stand up. And then Adam, why don't you stand up? So you guys, you are three persons, three persons, but you're also three beings, you're three beings. You can cooperate and you can work together, but you can be replaced, okay? If I were to replace you, it wouldn't compromise your being because you're three persons and you're three beings, okay? Now you guys go ahead and sit down. This means that God is one being, but three persons. This is what it means. He is more three than what I am on my own and more one than what that group is. Does that make sense? He's more three than what I am and he's more one than what they were together. This is what the Trinity means. Complicated, right? But he's not physical. And that's part of what makes this complicated is because we will try our hardest to force it into physical terms and it just will not happen. It will not go there. You wanna know why? Because everything physical is made up of parts and God is not. God is not made up of stuff. He simply is. He is being. He is one. That is who he is. He is simple. Not what I mean by that is that he's uncomplicated, right? But what I mean by simple is that he, there is no extra parts of him that needed to be created for him to be God. He simply is God and always has been for eternity. So what questions do you have about this that I can help hopefully clear some of these things up? Uh, which one? So he says, I'm one being and one person, and I'm a unity, and God is Trinity. God is Trinity. So sometimes he says, sometimes when I'm alone, I'm lonely, but when God is alone, he never is. And if there's three persons, what you're seeing is three beings, which can cooperate and work together, but if one of them is gone, it doesn't compromise them as a being. That means that God is one being and three persons. So he's more three than what I am on my own and more one than what that group would be. So any questions about anything we've talked about thus far? Does that make sense? Can I get any nods? Any nods? I'm a teacher, so I'm gonna keep going until it does. So 
Any questions about that? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. So um, typically how the image of God is what that, when people talk about being, like us being created in the image of God, um, a lot of people actually see that more as our ability to have mental capacity to choose and think and reason. Uh, because we're the only thing, only being in this world that has those abilities to do those types of things. Um, nothing else has that, has that ability. And that's, why, that's part of what makes us uniquely human in his world um, is, that, is that we, have, we bear the image um, within creation of a thinking capacity. Um, and so that's why it's, and this is part of why we're talking about this because most people, when they think about God, they think about a man. Like they usually think that he looks kind of like me, you know, like he looks, he's up in the sky, he's probably got a white beard. And the truth is, that's not, it's not really like that God doesn't have an image like that. That's why he was so concerned with the Israelites trying to, to make one, right? That's what we read in Deuteronomy. Like, I don't want you to make an image that's a bird or an animal or a man or whatever the case may be, because at the end of the day, you are going to see something in that that is not actually in me. You will always have a failed picture if you try to make an image out of it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So what's your question? So does God choose an image? Because now you're saying, I'm going to use my hands, you're going to see my back, you can't see my face, but yet. Yeah, I would say so. I would say he's, he's using language that makes sense to us, but not, are not necessarily physical parts of who he is. Which is why even like when, like the, really, um, he is this kind of radiant light right? Even in that moment that actually, even when what Moses does see, he has to cover his face with a veil because it's actually reflecting that glory in such, way, in such a way that when he goes down the mountain, people are like, dude, you got to put some, something on because we don't have sunglasses and it's too bright for our eyes, you know? Um, so yeah, I would say any, and, and the truth is like, you know, um, scripture uses these analogies all over, all over scripture. Like God will take us under his wings or, you know, God is, um, and with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, you know, like he's using the images that we are familiar with, um, but not necessarily in and of himself taking, like he, that is not who he is in and of himself. And so that's why even in Jesus, right? Like ultimately Jesus is the son, uh, but, but it, the, like that, that body is not who God is in and of himself, if that makes sense. And so that's why even when Jesus dies, um, it's not as if the son divine has died in the sense of like a human death, right? Which we'll talk about this more next week because this is, this is the deep stuff, okay? But, um, but it's, it's as if the, it's him and his human nature has died. And so he's actually experienced that human death, but in his divine essence, nothing has changed because at that level, you know, God can't die in that, in that from a, from his spiritual sense. In a physical way, he can, but not in a spiritual sense. 
I could just tell you guys are like, uh, check, please. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And and. Yep. Yep. And this is what I'm about to make this practical, okay? Because I understand that we're like up in the clouds right now. But that is a great way to start that descend um, back to how why this all matters, okay? Um, so, any other questions about this before I go into the Trinitarian life of God? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and again, even that is something physical, right? And so the point isn't that God, again, God can't use physical things um, or create even a physical body of sorts. Uh, But the point is more so that in and of himself, he is not physical. You know, uh, like I said, like the robot analogy, you know, I can make that robot talk, but if you take that robot away, it doesn't impact who I am you know, with like the nature of who I am, you know, you just took away that, that robot, but I still am who I am regardless of, of what I've made that robot to communicate. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, ultimately, God can talk however He wants to talk, right? But it's like, I think, very, like, in a very real way, which again, we'll, we'll get into this soon, but like in a very real way, in terms of like who we are as spiritual beings, um, God is, that's what God is primarily working on when it comes to our lives. These things are passing away, right? And every single person in, on this earth will die. And that's why we need God to resurrect something new entirely because of what these bodies are now um, enslaved to in regards to sin, suffering, and death. Um, that because of those things of decay and the things that have entered into this world, these bodies won't do for where we're going next. We need imperishable bodies. We need things that don't decay, don't rot. And so that's what ultimately the resurrection is the promise of. Any other questions about that? Yeah. I think about the transfiguration. Yeah. Um, those bodies were recognized. Yeah. Well, not technically Elijah's, but Moses, true. Yeah. Could have been. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think so. Yeah, I think so. But I think that we won't see. I don't think that we'll necessarily see God in his essence. 
You know, we, we, we will see, oh, well, I should say this, our spirit, the spiritual, our spiritual um, eyes, like our spirit doesn't have eyes, right? But our spirit and how those things will actually interact with God, will see God in that way, in a way that brings total delight and satisfaction. That is, I think, part of the, the goal of humanity is to simply be with God. And we will be with God and who, who he is in and of himself in his essence. But in terms of seeing him, he doesn't have a physical body. So that doesn't mean we won't see the physical form that, like Jesus, like, we, like Jesus still has a body. Like Jesus rose from the, from the grave and he has a body, right? And he went and he showed his body to his disciples and all these different people. And then he ascended into heaven, right? Into the heavens, which is really like he went up out of their sight. And what we don't know is like what the physical stuff will be made of even in the future. Like whether this physical stuff is exactly the same as the next physical stuff. And so there's so much we, we don't exactly know. And that's why we're using our best words and analogies to try to um, explain some of these things. But ultimately, even when we talk about God being father or when we talk about um, God being son or when we talk about God being literally anything, we're actually using analogy. We're using the, um, the words, not how God is in and of himself, but like words that God has given us to give us a taste toward that end. And so like, for instance, the word good is a good example. If, if I was using that word in a univocal way and I said, this hamburger is good, then what that I would really be saying about God is he's as good as that hamburger, you know, if it was univocal. Now, if it was equivocal, if I said it was good, then we'd have no idea what I was talking about because I could, I could apply good to lots of things. I like broccoli. I love broccoli and somehow my kids love it too. And we eat it all the time because it's healthy for us. And there's not a lot of other healthy foods we like, but we do like broccoli and we think it's good. Now, but, but some of you guys are thinking is that's not good. You see, and now that word good has taken on a new shape and meaning if it's equivocal. But if it's analogical, what it means is it's good. And what you mean, and now you can understand what I mean by saying broccoli is good, not because you think it's good, but because you know what I mean when I say it's good. And it has a certain quality to it that is healthy and beneficial and right, right? And that's how we're using language when we talk about God. It's not that it describes him in a very specific way or in a way that can't really touch him at all, but in a way that points our souls in the right direction towards who he is. And that's a really fundamental part of understanding how we talk about God in general, um, is even as father and son. Like those are words he gives us to give us a taste toward that direction. But we'll never quite have the vocabulary or even like our minds are finite. Like we can only understand so much but he gives us the little, little points of what we need to begin to understand the infinite, even if those words are analogous instead of concrete realities. So. Yeah, exactly, right. Yeah, we, and that's the thing. We don't exactly know what the physical stuff is in a, rex, in a resurrection body because it doesn't have the same sorts of physical properties that our bodies do now, which is a good thing because our bodies are decaying. They are, they are literally dying. And so for, for us, to, when we have resurrection bodies, they do have to be made of just different physical stuff. And one of the things that, um, again, we're getting into speculation a little bit, obviously, but one of the things that I think is one of the most beautiful thoughts about Jesus and his resurrection body, because he still has those marks on him. You know, he still has the nails in his hands. 
And he shows them to Thomas because Thomas is like, I just don't know if I believe you. Like, can I see something that I, that I can see and understand? Like, it really is you. And he shows him his hands and he shows him his wounds. And he says, this is who I am. And one of the things that N.T. Wright says that I think is one of the most beautiful things is he gives a speculation as to why this might be true. He says, what if in our resurrection bodies, we actually bear the scars and the wounds, the things that we endured because of love. And those are part of actually what's displayed in our glorious bodies. These things that we took on on our life to be done in love. And perhaps, well, we don't know. We don't know exactly what the physical stuff is made of or what those things will look like. Um, but it's some things we get a little bitty pictures of here and there within the New Testament that are pointing in that direction. Any other questions before we get into the Trinitarian life of God? All right, let's make this make sense, okay? Why does this all matter? Why does this all matter? All right, the first reason is that this is how Scripture reveals God to us, okay? This is how Scripture tells us who God is. Therefore, to not see God as Trinitarian is to see God as other than what is presented in Scripture. So the first reason is ultimately because this is God who says who he is. Now, it might be hard for us to understand, but God still wants to tell us. Like, wouldn't we want to know? Even if it's hard for us to understand, wouldn't we want to still, for God to try? Wouldn't we still want God to try to tell us? And that's what he's doing. The second reason is that this doctrine is a fundamental part of what separates Christians from Jews and Muslims and Mormons and Jehovah's Witness. This is a fundamental part of Christianity. It is really something that makes all other claims exclusive. It's a fundamental part of who we understand God to be and how we understand him to operate in his world. The third reason is that this understanding of God as Trinitarian gives us a reason to understand why God could be love. Okay? It is an inherent part of his very nature to give himself. And this is what the persons of the Trinity do. This is why God would want to create and invite people into fellowship with him to begin with. If God was simply one being and one person like I am, he would have no desire to share his life because he would be totally self-sufficient in and of himself. But because God is Trinitarian, within the Trinity, God is self-sufficient still, don't get me wrong, in and of himself, but his very nature is actually in the giving of himself. So his will is to continue that generosity and that love to creation, to continue to expand and share those things with every single thing. And lastly, and most importantly, when we speak of God acting in his world, it is never just one person of the Trinity doing something. They are all working together simultaneously. So when God operates in his world, it is always with one unified will. The Father, Son, and Spirit, they don't all have like different ideas of maybe what they should do. They don't come together and say, what do we do? No, this is one being, one will, and it always operates together. It's described like a dance. They're all moving and they're all doing and completing exactly what they all agree is perfect and good and meaningful. And so what this means is when you experience God, it is never without the other person. It is always the Father, Son, and Spirit. God, in his essence, can never be seen physically, but the Son takes on the form of matter to communicate, and the Spirit is the power and love that makes it possible not only for God to move things, but for us to move toward him. So the Father sends the Son. The Father and the Son send the Spirit. What the Father um, sends the Son to do and work, the Spirit applies in our life. They're all working simultaneously. And this is how God can be both totally transcendent and outside of the realm, but also imminent and therefore possible to, for us to know. 
It's how he can be totally infinite and yet imminent and, and enjoyed. Since the beginning of creation, God was rejected by mankind. Like we didn't want to look at God even though he was the most beautiful thing. God is the most beautiful thing and we didn't want to look at him. And the worst thing happened, we became ugly. Like that's what happens when sin enters our life. We become marred by sin and death and suffering enters the world because we didn't want his beauty. We wanted to make our own beauty and the whole world became grotesque in this whole process. Like the whole world just spinning in ways that we would never ever desire for, for it to ever be. But this is what makes the Trinity so stunning. Because even though we couldn't look at God when his beauty would hurt our eyes or demolish us altogether, he looked upon our ugliness. He looked upon us and loved us. He revealed himself through Jesus on the cross in his death and resurrection. And this is part of what the gospel does. This is part of the gospel is not just Jesus dying on the cross and rising again. The gospel is the father sending the son to die and resurrect and then sending the spirit to apply that resurrection to our own lives, to our own souls, to that spiritual part of who we are. This is what he tends to do all the time. He shows us his wisdom and his power and his unchanging character in the gospel. It's actually when we see Jesus on the cross and we see the resurrection that we get a window into the heart of God, the Father, Son, Spirit, and this dance that they've done all so that they could reunite creation with the people that that God intended to share his love with. This is part of what makes the Trinity the Trinity. So, the other part, well, I'll say this too. So the first part is, is the gospel, right? The gospel is seen clearly through the Trinity because of what the Father does in sending the Son and how the Spirit um, revives us, which is part of what Dana was saying, right? Dana was saying ultimately that um, through the Spirit, it's actually the Spirit that's reviving our spirit. It's actually what's bringing life into our bodies. This is what Paul says, like our bodies are wasting away, but the Spirit is actually revived and it's been resurrected. And it's now our desires and our will are being changed moment by moment to actually be able to choose the good and do those things simply to enjoy God and all that he's done. And the three biggest ways that, you, that we can see the Trinity at work in our lives in general and why it becomes so important, the first one is prayer. First one is prayer. So Romans 8 says that the Spirit lives in us because of what the Son did for us. So the Spirit of God lives in us. It, t- it has taken up residence in us and it is because of what the Son did. And the Son did that because the Father sent the Son and then the Father and Son sent the Spirit in to live with us. It resides in us and it revives us. And this is why Romans eight twenty six says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Romans 8.31, it continues on, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now listen to the Trinitarian language here. You're gonna see the Trinity all over scripture now that we're talking about it. As you read your Bible, you're just gonna start seeing it everywhere. Here's what it says. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what he's saying there? Even if our bodies are ripped away, our spirit remains. And our spirit is now in a union with the spirit of God. And the spirit of God is already at work in our life right now. Because there are so many times when we go before God and we're praying to him, but we don't know what to pray for because we don't always know his will. But this is one of the greatest things Paul says is because even when we go to God and we pray and we don't always know what to pray, the spirit is actually with us and it's interceding on our behalf. It's actually talking to the father through the son and it's doing all of these things and it's actually using our prayers and it's saying the words that, that we just don't have, we're absent with sometimes. And this is why I love what Tim Keller says. He says, he says that prayer is ultimately, uh, what does he say? He says, that God answers our prayers in the, ways in, which, uh, in the ways we would have wanted had we known what he knows. God answers our prayers in the ways that we would have asked had we known what he knows. And that's what the Spirit does for us. When we don't know what to pray, the Spirit prays it for us and God always says yes. The Father and Son say yes with the Spirit in a collision and in a collaboration and in a perfect singular will. And Scripture is the same way. It's the Word of God. It's the father testifying, sending the son and that testimony of the son and ultimately being inspired by his breath, his spirit to give us these words to read. And that's why when you read the word of God, of course you can just read it as information, right? But if you actually see it as the living, breathing word of God, sharper than any double-edged sword, that it's cutting deep into your soul, your very spirit, then you will begin to see that this is actually the very place where you go to be with God, to hear him speak. Again, God can speak however he wants. He can do whatever he wants. But here's what he's given us to simply hear his voice at all times. Like he's invited us into a relationship with him where our souls can continue to be revived and moved because the spirit of God is actually in us and it's communicating with the father and son even in that moment, changing us, moving us, putting to death the things that are terrible and bringing to life the things that we can never do on our own. This is what the Spirit of God does. This is what the Trinity does. This is what it means to participate in the Trinitarian life of God. It is not simply that there is a God up there and Jesus is here, and, but then he died and he rose and he's a human, but he's a special human and he's a cool human. And then the spirit is this other thing that we don't really understand, but we know it lives in us. No, this is God, one being, three persons, actively at work in your life, one will, and it's to bring about your good. And it will do so at any cost necessary. And that's what the cross shows us. And the other way, the last way we see this is through community. And this is part of, probably one of the coolest parts of how the Trinity works. Because the church is not a building, you are. The church is not a building, it's the body of Christ. That is how it is explained over and over again. The church is not a building, it is the bride and the groom is Jesus. And in the bride is the spirit. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians twelve seven. Now to each one, the manifestation of the spirit is given for the common good. For 1 Corinthians twelve eleven. All these are the work of one and the same spirit and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. We each have these different things that the spirit actually uses us for in light of God's kingdom and his world and in, we actually are joining the Trinitarian life of God in God's movement in this world, building his kingdom all at once. And 1 Corinthians 12, 12 says, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. 
1 Corinthians 12, 27 says, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is part of it. You see, we are the body of Christ and the reason is because we all have the spirit of Christ and therefore we all belong to the Father. We are always at every moment involved in the Trinitarian life of God and we need every single part of it for us to both experience it and praise it and worship it and then be used by it Like we are going into the world building a kingdom simply because this spirit is actually in us now. And we actually become manifestations of God in the world because of the spirit who is living within us. That we become the form that God has to take. He doesn't have to take on another form like Jesus. We actually, he's now using us in in cooperation with us to actually go into his world and start to move things and change things in ways that we could have never thought possible. And this church is growing and it's expanding and it's taking over the whole world. And eventually it's exactly who will be left with new bodies and new joy as we experience this God forever and ever. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It's beautiful. It's the most beautiful thing you will ever see. And if you just remember that moment when you saw that God clearly through the gospel story, when you first heard it, that song that might've been playing in the background, that that message that might have been spoken, that friend who might have shared it with you, whatever the case may be, you saw something there, not just with your tastes or your eyes or your senses, it spoke to your soul. And what that was, was the spirit coming in and taking up residence. And I know I've shared this before, but it's just so good when C.S. Lewis talks about what the spirit is doing, because it hurts at first We thought he was just gonna come in and he was gonna patch up the holes and the leaks and all those things. But then all of a sudden he starts pounding away at the walls and building out a wing and an upstairs. And we realize that God is not simply building a little village or a little town or a little house. He's building a palace. And that's where he's gonna live in us. And every single one of us now become a part of what makes up this grand eternal presence that is already starting to break into the world and eventually will be totally moving throughout it at all times. So that's my sermon, but questions about any of this stuff because this, this really does matter. Like if you love somebody, you wanna know everything there is about them, but sometimes they're complicated people to know. And sometimes them trying to explain something to you, you just don't really get it. That's kind of feel like God probably is to us. He's trying to explain who he is, but we don't get it sometimes. But he has given us enough to be able to understand and apply it to our lives. So any questions about any of this Trinitarian language thus far? All right. Yeah. Yeah, no worries. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. We're used to thinking in a physical way. And so it's hard, it is hard to conceive of the spiritual. Um, And yet that is the most fundamental part of actually who we are, is the soul that actually thinks and wills and desires um, and moves this body to do different things in, in God's world. Again, this body is part of who we are, but we're going to have new ones, you know. And if you do have questions, don't forget you can write those down.
Okay, so if there were things that I failed to explain or anything, you can write those things down as well. Yes. Um, I mean, yes. Um, that's more of a translation thing. So, like for instance, if you have a King James version, it would it will ta- it'll use that phrase "Holy Ghost." Um, but um, it's just it's act- it's still inter- it's still translating the same word, which is in Greek it's pneuma, um, which is essentially it just means like the spirit, and then it typically has associated with it the Holy Spirit. So it would be like agios pneuma, which is Holy Spirit. Um, but but yeah, it has like that's how it was translated because their conception of ghost when the King James version was written was different than our conception of ghost right now, and so. We use a different word there, but it's the same, same meaning as it would have been to the King James, people reading the King James Version as it would be to us right now. Any other questions? All right. Well, next week we're going to tackle Christology, which is essentially the Christ, the study of Christ. And we're going to look at who he is, um, what he's done throughout, obviously within Scripture, and also what it really means for, for God to take on human form and how that works, like how it's possible that like God dies on the cross. Like what, is the, what do those things really mean? So again, um, some things that are kind of mind boggling to us, but I think still very good questions to ask. And hopefully this is helpful in terms of, um, of how the Bible begins to show us who these people are. And we're not going to go, we won't spend all the time on that. We're going to talk about Jesus and the theology of who he is as a whole. Like, what, what, what is atonement meant to begin with? Like, why did he have to die? You know, what his life meant? Why, why did he heal one leprosy, but not all of them? You know, like, we're going to try to tackle some of those things. So it won't be all abstract up in the air like today was more so, but, um, but it will have a little bit of that at least. But I, I do want to make sure to, to keep it um, practical and, and also um, reasonable within that. So, all right. See you next week, guys. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.